Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Bobby, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I know you were expecting Pastor Owen, but he had to do the most important work of loving his wife as she was getting treatment, and so we're so thankful that he does that with all of his heart. And so I will be uh, sharing the Word of God today. The title of today's sermon is Another in the Fire, um, Daniel chapter 3, verse 15 through 30. This is one of the most well-known texts in the Bible, and even our children know this really well. Um, And so let's look. Daniel chapter 3, verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent. And the furnace overheated, and, flame, and the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed Be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who was sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. 
Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me in humility before our Lord before we begin? Lord God, would you have mercy upon me, a sinner before you? For we who carry unspeakable burdens of our hearts to this room, many of our marriages broken, our relationship with our children and our loved ones strained and fallen apart, our finances, the worries of our hearts as we come to this room. Would you meet with us in our fires? Would you love us and heal us in this place? We pray all of this in your name. Amen. This text is usually taught, and I've heard so many sermons on this text, and it challenges us usually to not to be courageous and to not compromise, to not assimilate like the rest of the world, even if it means being thrown into the fire. But I think there is a powerful message that we miss about the gospel, the nature of Christ, him being made most beautiful and comforting in our fires because we focus on ourselves once again. So we'll anchor the text through these three points. The first being leading to the fire. Second, another in the fire. And third, there's comfort in the fire. So let's look at leading to the fire. Daniel 1 tells the story of a young man in their youth, and they were taken to a strange land, and they were stripped of their identity as the people of God. They were taken from their homes, the language, their dress, their culture, even finally their name. Even now, if I were to ask what the names of Daniel's friends who were thrown in the fire were, every single one of you, including my kids, my three daughters, they're like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'm like, Dad, those are hard names. Would you say that quick? Our Sunday school's great. But their birth name, do you guys know what it is? I bet there would be so few of us who would be able to give the birth name, the real name of these men. Hananiah, Mishael, right? And Azariah. No, no idea, right? <laughs> they don't res- They did not resist any of the changes that were forced upon them, some even believing that they could have been made eunuchs before the king, losing the ability to have children. But when they were being forced to compromise their relationship with God by eating food and wine that may have been dedicated to the idols, whether it was against their dietary laws or in their heart, it was a loyalty sworn to the king that should only be given to God, it was a direct offense that would cause the boys to be defiled before God. And so they said, we will not do it. In wisdom and favored by God before the chief eunuch, they found and asked to be tested. Give us 10 days. Let us eat the common vegetables. We don't need the beautiful and well-prepared foods of the king, but let us eat vegetables and we'll be okay. After 10 days, they were found to be so strong. They even called them being fatter than the other boys. We are sojourners in this world in many ways. We're going to have to adjust ourselves in order to love the people that are around us in our lives. You know, when most people ask me who I am, 
I mean, if most people ask who I am, they say, that's Pastor Bobby. My girls, when asked, they say, that's Appa or Daddy. My friends call me Bobby. And Siri wants to also call me something. My closest friends give me nicknames like Bob's or Cuz. But do you know, that's, the not, that's not the name given to me at birth. My actual name that I received when I was born is Jin Wan. Don't call me that. <laughs> when we immigrated to the States, people said that it would be hard to pronounce and that it may sound feminine. And so the boss's daughter at my parents' restaurant, sushi restaurant, chose the name Bobby, because back then in the 80s, Bobby was the quarterback, big, buff, and so they were like, go with Bobby. All, all through high school, people call me Bobby Sue, because people couldn't pronounce my last name, so they just kept saying Bobby Sue, and I just let it go, because I didn't want to make it difficult for my friends who couldn't really pronounce it, so I wanted to assimilate and make them comfortable. When I got to college, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to tell people what my name is. And so I said, my name is Pabisa. I have rice. Pabisa. Which actually caused... <clears throat> which actually caused... A lot of people are like, oh my God, I just realized. Which actually caused a fight between my high school friends and my college friends. So one of my high school friends were like, yo man... People think your name is Bobby Sup. I know it's Bobby Sue. That's what you said. And I was like, ah, oh, shoot. It's Bobby Sup. Am I going to demand people call me Jinwan from now on? No. I actually, when I got naturalized, changed my name to Bobby Jinwan Sup. Just like that, we are willing to adjust to a new life, what, require, what is required of us for assimilation, especially being in a new country, learning a new language, loving a new community. But there are times when we draw the line from assimilating because those things are our primary identities that we will not compromise. For some of us, our primary identity is being a parent. So when we become empty nesters or our children reject us, we lose our primary identity and we feel often very lost. For some of us, our primary identity is our job or our career. So when we make a tough decision to stop working because we're going to have children or retire from our jobs, or maybe even we get fired or laid off at a job that we poured our life into, we feel once again lost. Who am I if I am not defined by my job, what I poured my life into? For many in ministry, when we lose our jobs, some of my friends who've lost their um, church and their calling, when they step down from a position of leading ministry, our, our identity is so tied to that title, Pastor Bobby, that we feel lost. Who am I if I am not Pastor Bobby? The context of our text tells us that these young men that we will see in this text who enter into the fire, they had to work through what their primary identity was. What am I willing to compromise and give up for the sake of loving the people that I need to? And what are the things that I will never compromise? I will rather go into the fire to be burned than compromise these 
things. One of the most important journeys for us is to be able to find clarity in working through some of our false primary identities that we cling to in this life. It will usually be when we lose the thing that we cherish the most, that we have poured our life into, that we begin to feel lost. We will grieve what made life joyful and have meaning. Are we someone's wife? Are we someone's friend? Are we someone's boss? Are we someone's pastor? He needs us to gain clarity that our primary identity cannot be tied to earthly or temporary things. They are all good things. To be properly grieved when they are lost, but they are not our primary identity. Yes, I am the husband to the most amazing wife. I am the daddy to the most amazing three little girls. I am the pastor to a most amazing broken church. And yet still, this is not my primary identity. But what God is saying is that the one single identity that cannot ever be taken away from us is that we are the image bearers of God. It is a Identity that we ourselves cannot forfeit even if we tried because it is not earned by us. The children of God as co-heirs with Christ, God's chosen elect, it is gifted to us. Primarily defined as the one singular ultimate relationship, you and I are God's beloved. He gave everything to make us who were lost and searching for our identity in this world and in created things to know with certainty, to reject those false primary identities and to be defined for all eternity as one who is loved by God. No amount of suffering, brokenness, loss of friends, loss of spouse, loss of children, loss of your job, nothing can ever separate you from this primary identity. You are his. You have a belonging that will never be taken away or diminished. Many of us might be lost for a little while in grief when we lose these things. We might suffer depression and we might suffer a darkness that we see no light to. And in those times, we have people who surround us, sit with us to remind us that there is coming a time of hope because he is with us and nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Second, There is another in the fire that we have to remember in this life. Chapter 2 describes Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And there are nations that are coming after him. But this, his kingdom was of the greatest value. The gold head was Nebuchadnezzar's and all the kings and kingdoms to follow would be lesser than all the way going down to the clay. Here we continue in the theme of seeing Nebuchadnezzar's primary identity is made clear in the dream's interpretation and what he does with it. The proper understanding of the dream is this. This is what Daniel was trying to convey and what God was telling Nebuchadnezzar. Even though you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the richest and most prominent king among all of the earthly kings and kingdoms for centuries, all of it will eventually come to an end. There is only one king of kings who reigns over all of the kingdoms. But instead of accepting that, what Nebuchadnezzar ends up hearing 
And what we see in his action in chapter 3 is the interpretation that he took in his heart. He builds a golden statue we can see that is his primary identity and he desires actions from others to reinforce the identity that he had built for himself. He wants to be acknowledged by others. And so he builds a 90 feet tall, nine, nine feet by 90 feet tall golden statue. I'm five foot seven, maybe eight on a good day. 90 times so tall. Did you know that whatever idolatry we have in our hearts, that we make our primary identity, you and I will need reinforcement, acknowledgement from other people that that's our worth and that's our joy. We will demand it. We will vie for it. We will manipulate other people to grant it and support us. This is why you and I look for opportunities to insert in some weird conversation whatever school you went to. Oh, it happened, huh? <laughs> we will insert what school our children are going to, what job we have, all the consulting companies that everyone wants to get into, what job our children has, why we long to showcase our gifts before a crowd because we need other people to affirm that we matter, that this is our chosen primary identity we have poured years and hours into and we want people to say, that's who you are. This is why sometimes as life-giving and good as a social media platform is to help maybe new moms could become such a primary identity for you that when in the comments someone contradicts your advice, something starts arising in your soul, anger, frustration, and you comment back snidely, disagreeing, attacking. Why do we feel the need to tell other people how much work we are doing, how much we know dropping knowledge left and right because we are defending the reason for our existence by the approval and acknowledgement of other people of the statue that we have built up. Can't you see the 90-foot gold statue I have built with my hands? Will you say that is who I am and that it's beautiful? So Nebuchadnezzar builds a representation of his primary identity. We, can't, we can tell it's an idol by how he reacts when people don't abide by what he wants from other people. When people refuses to worship the idol that he had put up before other people, Nebuchadnezzar explodes in anger. Whether it's deep sadness or deep anger, whatever deep emotion is brought out, when your idol is touched. You know, there are times when I get super mad at my kids, far beyond what I should. Um, before I go to bed, you know, after working and my wife is kind of washing up the girls, I go through the main floor. Upstairs, our house, like, just chaos. There's like 15 baskets of laundry and the girl keeps, girls keep changing their clothes and so we just can never get ahead of that. 
But downstairs on the main floor where we stay most of the time, before I go to bed, I just wipe down all the stuff and I put the chairs where it's supposed to be. I take literally the cushions and put it exactly the same every night. And I look right before I go to bed and there's this like peace. I go, oh, yes, everyone can agree, right? Well, the type A people. A little bit, a little bit. But on those days when my kids just throw Legos all over the floor, there are Barbie doll shoes and stilettos that I step on, and all this rage inside comes out. Why? Why again? I cleaned this yesterday. I cleaned it the day before, and things start arising in my soul. And I know it's idolatry because the Holy Spirit's like, whoa, a little bit too angry about the stilettos, no? My kids, my girls, my beautiful girls, decide to build a lemonade stand. It's so big, it consumes our entire hallway. And they have put kitchens and seats and tables and baskets. They have menus. They have right. They just took over the hallway. And when I look, there is a part of me that's like, why? I can't clean that. I had to work through that. It was such a deep pain and an idolatry to my soul that I can't get what I want, the control. I had to repent. And I have to look at it every night. And I have to rejoice that I have three little girls who love that. Nebuchadnezzar used his position, authority, power to demand that other people all around him reinforce his idolatrous identity because for the first time, then he doesn't feel like that it's an an idol. It is who he is. This is a sign that it runs so deep that we cannot separate our idols from ourselves. He explodes in anger and orders the men to be thrown into the fire. Men whom he once approved and placed in the highest positions that he trusted, he now wants to kill because they're in the way of worshiping that which he established as his own identity. Because in the face of our idols, nothing matters. All of it is an obstacle to be crushed and removed so we can have it back. He demands the fire to be heated to such an unsafe level that no one is willing to go near it except for who? The mighty men who had won every war to bring him his kingdom. The men who went to battle every time and was willing to give their life for him They were the men that bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the fire so great that still went as they were being burned alive, followed his order to put them into the fire. Then those mighty men died next to the furnace. A king who is supposed to protect, love, and lead his men sacrificed it for his idols. Every boss, every shepherd, every pastor, every elder, every president, every congressman, parent, teacher, caregiver who sacrifices those that God has placed for you to love 
so that all can worship the idol of your heart. That is certainly not your primary identity, but an idolatry that you're protecting. What we will see when we protect our idol is a trail of wounded and broken bodies who were sacrificed for the unchecked and unrepentant idolatry of our souls. But when they were thrown in the fire, they noticed that they weren't burning up like the men that he sacrificed. Instead, they were free, walking around in the fire, unsinged. And there was one more in the fire. The commentaries are affirming that the reality that this being referred to Nebuchadnezzar as the son of God is one of a Christophany in the Old Testament, a revelation of the second person of the Trinity. In response, Nebuchadnezzar bows and declares them servants of the Most High God. So here's the point. This is a tale, a picture of two kings. One earthly king, the greatest of its kind at that time, for centuries, so insecure, so invested in his idolatrous identity that he demands others endless acknowledgement of this gold statue. Affirmation over and over, afraid that when there is silence and the applause dies, that he no longer matters. And how many of us feel like when the applause stops and there is silence, we don't know who we are? The second king who has nothing to prove because he is the source of all life and meaning and glory, the true king of kings, he doesn't need to prove himself and get acknowledged for how much he does and who he is because in himself is perfection. He is able to empty himself of that glory already committed to coming as a babe in a manger to a people who would rather worship idols than the actual God who created the heavens and the earth. He would surrender his glory to become sin you and I would commit. Treated like the worst of sinners, lowest of scums, to go voluntarily into the fire that we deserve. One king is willing to use and abuse those who are under his authority, sacrificing them by burning them up, his most trusted, loyal friends and subjects. A trail of people under his care, abused bodies, dead bodies, to satisfy his idolatry. This tale is asking us begging us, the Spirit of God brought you into this room to ask, are there members of your family, your spouse, your friends, your community that was sacrificed by you to protect your idols? The text is exhorting us in love to look within, for you cannot be free until you see it, until you own it, until you say that is my idol, until the scales by his grace and mercy fall from your eyes, 
Because what is given to those who can own their idols is he who walks in the fire with you. He who calls you his beloved. You see, for many of us, we look at this text and we think we are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We won't compromise. We will run into the fire. But you see, Jesus died for those who are like Nebuchadnezzar. Those who have idols that they push before other people so that they can find their worth and joy somewhere on this earth so that they feel like there's a reason for why they're here. For those of us who are like that, there is the good news of the gospel that he loves you and is willing to go to the fire for you. This message isn't about how we need to be more like the three young men. No. The good news of the gospel tells us that we who are like Nebuchadnezzar, who live daily to set up our idols, we are idol-making factories that will move from one thing to the next, from a job to being married to having a house to buying a car that we want, just over and over from even things that are amazing and good like children and ministry and the job that God has given us as a gift He takes such people and he says, I am willing to die for your idolatry. He who had no sin became sin and entered the eternal fire that you and I deserve. Because for him, he wants us to never, ever be alone in our fires here on earth. So the only appropriate response to a love like this is worship. It's repentance. It is an all heart consuming, tear filled, repentant, prostrate worship because one day there will be no more tears because he will wipe them all away. But until that day, we repent of the idols we set up and the people we destroy for our idols and we seek for him to walk with us. Lastly, why? Why confront us about our idols? Why bring us to repentance? Because there is comfort for those of us in the fire. And there is comfort for those that we love who will also enter into their own fire. So what does a life of a worshiper look like when they are standing in the fire, unbound, and in the presence of their Savior daily? What does it look like for someone to drink of that Savior who loves them so deeply that it allows them the power to let go of their idols? It's an understanding that we worship a God who could have removed the fire, but instead he chose to stand with us in the fire. Many spouses and parents have wept rivers of tears asking God, my wayward child who has rejected Christ, God, would you have mercy? My spouse who is dying of cancer, would you have mercy? For reasons no one on this side of heaven will ever fully understand, God does not always remove the fire. 
There is reason why community is not an option for us as a believer, for we cannot stand alone in the fire. We are profoundly transformed when we stand with others who also find their deepest comfort in their Lord who went to the fire on our behalf. Kara Tippett, the wife of Jason Tippett, a pastor in the PCA, like our denomination, she shared through a blog and movie and even books her journey through terminal cancer. Unlike the cancer taking her home, Ultimately, the cancer taking her home to be with the Lord. She shares again and again what community has meant to her during her journey and in the fire. She writes, Though my bald, emaciated days, the prayer through this verse came out in one and two word please. Help. Oh, help, Jesus, help. Mercy, have mercy, protect my kids, help. I sometimes shudder looking at these pictures. But if I look close, really close, I was helped. I was not alone. See that hand? That's Anna lifting the burden. She rubbed my back and emptied my vomit bucket without being grossed out. See the picture? There's my beautiful Jen. Next one. Behind the lens, weeping and loving me quietly by entering this place of suffering. Sometimes I struggle with the verse because I want the verse to mean my burden is going to be taken away. But if I really look closely at the verse, it doesn't say that. I want this verse to mean that my friend's niece won't have to go through chemo at the impossibly young age of two, that my friend will be granted passage home with her new son from the Congo, that the damage done to my friend's GI tract from the radiation can be healed and food will once again have a safe passage. You see, I very much have a picture of what a light burden and easy yoke looks like. I'm pretty sure that my picture isn't at all what Jesus means. When I look at what Jesus means, I'm not angry. I am deeply comforted. Can you see him here lifting my burdens? I can. Though Kara went home to be with the Lord, her friends who sat with her and wept with her daily they were profoundly changed in the fire. One of her friends said this, I'd gotten used to not being able to fix her or fix her problems, but I never got used to the depth of her pain or the depth of God's grace that met with her. I sat listening. How could I possibly encourage her? The sorrow overwhelmed me and I only had tears. I tried to speak but the tears triumphed and we sat in silence, hands holding, our cries hushed by the grace that arrived in our moment of need, the grace that provided unity and comfort. And later in the day, I chastised myself for not being ready to speak truth and encouragement into her heart. I wanted to have made a difference with my words, to have pointed her to Jesus or to at least have cheered her up but then I got a text from Kara. Thank you for being with me. 
for letting me cry, for just being present. I realize now that while I often feel like doing something, what my friend needed was my presence, a safe place, a place where she could cry and mourn and talk of her journey home, and in turn, she provided that for me too. She didn't need to respond with clever words or comforting platitudes. All my heart craved was the grace of her presence. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Verse 3 reminds us what our calling is at church. We are not to meet every need of every person in this place. You are not the savior of the people at our church. We are to point others to him as we sit with them and weep with them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. For Christianity is a ministry of presence, of witness that comforts those that are suffering because we will never take it away. We sit and we weep and we listen. So Kara's friends were so profoundly transformed that when she left, they were broken and lost. And yet... They remain the light that their community needed. Kara's friend Jill said the following. Recently, a dear friend of mine lost her first grandchild when the baby came early. Born at 28 weeks and then passed away from complication. My friend's heart is broken. And I'm supposed to know what to say. At least that's what I keep telling myself. Find the right words. Find the right words. I should know what to say. After all, Kara and I wrote the book on suffering. But then I remember that no. We're not supposed to know what to say in this kind of pain. There is nothing to say to make this kind of suffering better. My soul whispers to hers, and I hope she can hear me. I hope she knows how much I love her. I hope she can feel my prayers and my long-distance hug. I hope she lets me grieve with her because the depth of her heartbreak is echoing inside my chest. And I hope that she knows that I am crying with her because tears are silent proof that we are listening that we see our friend's pain, and though we might not be able to fix it, we'll sit with them in it. The goal of community and church is not to be the one that takes the fire and the sufferings of those we love away, but it's to sit and weep in a broken world that has damaged all of us, that we don't have an answer for outside of the comfort of the Christ that comforted us. 
The goal for us is to sit and listen and be together in the fire. Because in the fire, our Savior meets with us. In the fire that he took on our behalf, he meets with us and says, you don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to try to be loved because you are loved. And one day, I will bring you home where I will wipe away every tear. And for all eternity, we will rejoice that you are home. Let's pray. You see, if the church just becomes a place where you exalt your idols and you demand other people just meet your idols again and again, you will still remain so empty. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, this is who we are. But there is a Savior that loves us who are Nebuchadnezzar's, all of us. He was willing to take the eternal fire of hell that we deserve so that we can stand in that fire unscathed, unburned, rejoicing. This is why we exist as a church because this is the message of the church that we have been given to take to a world that is exhausted exhausted from their idols. So can we pray and ask God, Lord God, will you meet me in my fire? The unspeakable burdens of my heart. And will you tell me that I am your beloved? so I can get through this next day. Lord God, would you be so gracious to meet with us today in the fire? For every one of us, carry unspeakable pain and burdens of our past, our failures, our shame, our guilt the idolatries that we currently uphold and demand other people meet. But we want to be freed in that fire. We want to walk with you and we want to see you face to face to hear only your voice. Amen.